0: Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm Richard E. Grant and in today's episode I'm joined in the Penguin studio by an author who has been described as the master of the intelligent thriller. His best-selling novels include Fatherland, Enigma, Pompeii and The Ghostwriter. He's here to talk about his latest novel, Conclave, which is set in the heart of the Vatican. He's, of course, Robert Harris. Robert, welcome. Thanks, Richard. Nice to be here. Now, Robert, Conclave takes us behind the locked doors of the Sistine Chapel as 118 cardinals cast their votes in the world's most secretive election. What drew you to write about
1: the election of a new pope? Well, I suppose because it is the most secretive election in the world, and that's whenever anything is secretive. Of course, you know, that's a red flag to the bull. So I just really wondered what happened after the Sistine Chapel doors are closed and they are locked from the outside and the cardinals set about the business of choosing a pope. There are 118 cardinals and how do they find out who to choose? And so that's what I set out to investigate. But where did the spark for this idea come from in the first place? Well, I observed the conclaves of 2005 and 2013 and something stirred in my mind. And when I was younger, I read a novel by C.P. Snow called The Masters, which is about uh, the election of the head of a Cambridge college, published in the early 50s. It's just interesting the way power is decided in an enclosed world, an entirely masculine world in that novel as well. And I've always wanted to write something like that and I thought the papacy this is the oldest election in the world the most secretive and arguably one of the most influential given there were one and a quarter billion Catholics you know it was curiosity as much as anything impelled me and once I'd finished my Cicero novels I had some free time so I I just did some research and I found that it was even more interesting than I thought.
0: Now, the novel centres around Cardinal Lamelli, the Dean of the College of Cardinals, who must oversee the election. Let's hear the opening of the audiobook of Conclave. In this extract, Lamelli realises the fate of the old Pope.
2: Cardinal Lamelli left his apartment in the Palace of the Holy Office shortly before two in the morning and hurried through the darkened cloisters of the Vatican towards the bedroom of the Pope. He was praying. Oh, Lord. He still has so much to do, whereas all my useful work in your service is completed. He is beloved, while I am forgotten. Spare him, Lord. Spare him. Take me instead. He toiled up the cobbled slope towards the Piazza Santa Marta. The Roman air was soft and misty, yet already he could detect the first faint chill of autumn. It was raining slightly. The prefect of the papal household had sounded so panicked on the telephone, Lomellì was expecting to be met by a scene of pandemonium. In fact, the piazza was unusually quiet, apart from a solitary ambulance parked a discreet distance away, silhouetted against the floodlit southern flank of St. Peter's. Its interior light was on, the windscreen wipers scudding back and forth, close enough for him to be able to make out the faces of both the driver and his assistant. The driver was using a mobile phone, and Lomellì thought with a shock, they haven't come to take a sick man to the hospital. They've come to take away a body.
0: The Chilling Opening of Conclave, read by Roy Macmillan and written by my guest, Robert Harris. Robert, today you've brought along a number of objects to the Penguin Studio that have influenced your writing career in some way. And your first object is a life-size head of Cicero. How did you come by this?
1: Well, nothing very romantic about it. I got it by mail order from an American (laughs) company which can turn out any of the world's greatest statues for you. But they're very well made, actually, and mounted and solid. And this is a reproduction of a famous head of Cicero. And I didn't have it at the start of writing my trilogy of novels about Cicero. I got it when I was starting the third one, Dictator. I was trying to get back into the rhythm of the book and I saw this, and i thought well i 'll get that and it 's very impressive, very heavy sits on my desk, stares at me, and i don 't think i'll ever get rid of it actually it 's a very sort of reassuring paternal figure to look at and i have I spent ten years in the company of Cicero, and I came to greatly admire him, and he 's been a big part of my life so it's it 's like having the Photograph of a family member almost. You've said that this sits on your desk at home and that it's a
0: paternalistic influence. Does it have you ever had any writer's block and looking at him helps you along?
1: I've had writer's block right at the beginning of my career. I found it quite difficult to write Fatherland and indeed having started it. I then put it away for a year or more and then got it out and looked at it and finally managed to make it work. And then when that was a success, I found writing my second novel, Enigma, very difficult. That took me three years and really was, at least a year of which, was quite despairing writer's block. Earlier in my life, the books came slowly with a gap of three years, three years, three, five years to do Pompeii. And then suddenly, somehow... I seem to break through a barrier with about the fourth or fifth novel and since then I've enjoyed the whole process far more and I haven't, thank God, experienced block. So do you lay this at Cicero's head? It's really from the start of writing that trilogy that I actually got into a a groove of writing more and I interrupted the trilogy to write The Ghost* which I did very quickly in about three months or something like that, at the same time as I was working on a screenplay. It was like a blocked drain. Had been <laughs> Cicero had inserted the rods down the drain and suddenly everything was pouring through. I should stop this metaphor as I don't think I'm coming out of it very well. Okay.
0: <laughs> Robert, you've written about ancient Rome in your previous novels. Although Conclave deals with an old tradition... It's set in the modern day. Are the politics and ambitions of ancient Rome still present in some way, even though no one gets their head cut off?
1: Well, it's certainly true that uh, much of the Roman structure of society comes through to us through the Roman Catholic Church. And when I saw the conclaves of 2005 and 2013, the Pope appears on the balcony at St Peter's and crowded in the windows behind and along are the faces of the men who've just elected him. And to see these elderly faces, some of them benign, some of them crafty, some of them curious, I remember looking at them and thinking, that is the Roman Senate... You are looking... Because Senate, Senex, old men, that was what ran Rome. So I think there are lots of similarities between the Roman Catholic Church and the Roman structure of power, yes. Pontiff, Pontifex Maximus. This is the post that was held by Julius Caesar. The Pope is Pontifex Maximus, uh, hence Pontiff.
0: Well, the stage is set for the election at the start of the novel. Let's meet the potential candidates in another extract from Conclave as Lomelli muses over who might get the top job. Later, Lomelli would look back on this as the moment
2: when the contest for the succession began. All three cardinals were known to have factions of supporters inside the Electoral College. Bellini, the great intellectual hope of the Liberals for as long as Lomelli could remember, a former rector of the Gregorian University and former Archbishop of Milan. Trombley, who, as well as serving as Camerlengo, was prefect of the Congregation for the Evangelization of Peoples, a candidate therefore with links to the Third World, who had the advantage of seeming to be an American without the disadvantage of actually being one, and Adeyemi, who carried within him like a divine spark the revolutionary possibility endlessly fascinating to the media that he might one day become the first black pope. And slowly, as he observed the manoeuvring begin in the Casa Santa Marta, the realisation came upon Lomeli that it would fall to him, as Dean of the College of Cardinals, to manage the election. It was a duty he had never expected to perform. He had been diagnosed with prostate cancer a few years earlier, and although he had supposedly been cured, he had always assumed he would die before the Pope. He had only ever thought of himself as a stopgap. He had tried to resign. But now it seemed he would be responsible for the organisation of a conclave in the most difficult of circumstances. He closed his eyes. If it is your will, O Lord, that I should have to discharge this duty, I pray that you will give me the wisdom to perform it in a manner that will strengthen our mother,
0: the Church. Absolute page-turner. Robert, your next object takes us back to your own childhood, and it's a 1920 Remington typewriter. We've never had any author who's brought in such... Heavy objects as yours today. Well, it is portable. It's a portable. It is family. portable.
1: Yes, well, quite early in my life, when I was about eight, I decided I wanted to be a writer. The first time I had earned any money when I was about 11 or 12 doing a paper round, I had £10. And I bought in Nottingham, in a back street there from a shop that dealt in reconditioned typewriters, I bought this uh, very old uh, Remington portable. And taught myself to type, and I used to write imaginary newspapers on it, and uh, and write plays. That was really I wouldn't want to be a novelist at all. I wanted to be a playwright. There's something about it to this day. The smell of oil you get in an t- old typewriter, the sound of it, everything. All of my life really flows from playing around on that machine. That's an incredibly formative age to know that that's what you wanted to do with your life. It's been one of the blessings of my life I mean I'm not very good at many things. I can just do the one thing to begin with. I was rather envious of people who were good at sport and they could do lots of things and uh, they were good at science and you know and, okay, and, I type yeah, them they could well, they could do anything <laughs> and therefore, there was a certain paralysis then came or you know you could do lots of things your life could go in any direction, yeah. really, I knew from an early age my life could only go in one direction, and that had that, that simplified things actually. A lot.
0: Now, you've written many best-selling novels, and though you worked in journalism for many years before turning your hand to novel writing, was it an ambition that was always at the back of your mind? I mean, you said that you wanted to write plays when you were 11.
1: Yes, because there was an immediacy with plays. I mean, when I was a little bit older than that, 15, 16, 17, I used to write plays and used to put them on with friends at school and parents would come and see them. And so, you know, you could you could have an effect. I was obsessed with things, and God help us, the theatre of the absurd. There was a great <laughs> book by Martin Eslund, A Blue uh, I know Pelican. I very well. I knew it backwards, and I was very interested in all those British playwrights, Arden, Wesker, Osborne and so on. And uh, there was a wonderful series of books on those. So uh, that's what I concentrated on. And that and doing this student paper, it was just really putting one word after the other that I enjoyed. So, what stopped you being a playwright? Lack of talent. <laughs> I mean, I could no longer, when I was in my 20s, find friends who were willing to... or parents who were willing to come and watch, so I think it sort of dried up. And I did, you know. I was working as a journalist at the BBC and then in newspapers and I was writing non-fiction books. And, you know, just as long as I got some writing to do, I was happy. But I reached a pitch of of non-fiction where I did a book about the Hitler Diaries and it was so close to fiction that the logical next step was to make it up. And that's what I did.
0: I've met so many journalists who want to be successful novelists, so you must have raised the ire of many people for doing it. From your childhood typing back to the present day, let's dip back into the audiobook of Conclave, read by Roy Macmillan.
2: As they reached the ambulance, Lomeli tried to picture the Universal Church at that moment. Some one and a quarter billion souls... The ragged crowds gathered around the television sets in the slums of Manila and Sao Paulo, the swarms of commuters in Tokyo and Shanghai hypnotized by their mobile phones, the sports fans in the bars of Boston and New York whose games were being interrupted. Go forth and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The body slid head first into the back of the ambulance. The rear door slammed. The four cardinals stood at solemn attention as the cortege pulled away. Two motorcycles, then a police car, then the ambulance, then another police car, and finally more motorcycles. It swept around the piazza for a moment and disappeared. The instant it was out of sight, the sirens were switched on. So much for humility, thought Lamelli. So much for the poor of the earth. It could have been the motorcade of a dictator. The wails of the cortege dwindled into the night. Behind their rope line, the reporters and photographers started calling out to the cardinals like tourists at a zoo trying to persuade the animals to come closer. Your eminence! Your eminence! Over here! One of us should say something, announced Trombley, and without waiting for a response, he set off across the piazza. The lights seemed to impart to his silhouette a fiery halo. Adeyemi managed to restrain himself for a few more seconds, and then went in pursuit. Bellini said, under his breath and with great contempt, What a circus! Shouldn't you join them? suggested Lomelli. God, no! I shan't pander to the mob. I think I would prefer to go to the chapel and pray. He smiled sadly and rattled something in his hand, and Lomelli saw that he was holding the travelling chess set. Come, he said, join me. Let us say a mass for our friend together. As they walked back to the Casa Santa Marta, he took Lomellì's arm. "'The Holy Father told me of your difficulties with prayer,' he whispered. "'Perhaps I can help. You know that he had doubts himself by the end. The Pope had doubts about God. Not about God. Never about God.' And then Bellini said something Lomellì would never forget.
0: "'What he had lost faith in was the Church.' An extract of the audiobook of Conclave, read by Roy McMillan. Robert, Lamele and Bellini talk about faith at the end of that extract. Now, you've said that you're not religious. How difficult was it to imagine the faith of your characters?
1: Well, it, oddly enough, it was easier than I expected. Right at the beginning, I read the Gospels, and I read them quickly. And I must say it's quite an experience to do that and a real historical living presence rises from the pages, a man full of contradictions and and this extraordinary message which is still so revolutionary that I found that it gave me a kind of connection. I don't have religious faith, but I can understand those that do, I think. And part of the job of being a novelist anyway is to is to put yourself in the head of... People are nothing like you. In Pompeii, it's a, a Roman water engineer. Or in an officer in a spy, it's a 19th century French officer. And I've found that Lamelli was the key to the novel because of this struggle to pray, to talk to God. And it meant that God is very present in the book, which is important. God is almost a character in the book. And um, I found the whole thing rather moving, actually. It's a faith I don't share, but it's a, f- it's a faith I think I can observe and, and try and understand how someone has it and is losing it and is trying to get it back. So were you brought up without any religion? My father had been confirmed in the Church of England, but he had lost his faith and rather turned on on organized religion and took the decision he wouldn't even have me christened. To be honest, I regret that because I would have liked to at least have had that. Um, whereas now for me at my age, n- nearly 60, to go to the vicar and say I think I want to be christened would, would look like more of a statement than I wish really to be making. You know, I'd like to have been born with a utility like uh, having the water or the electricity. I mean, I'd just like to have been christened, um, but I'm not. So, but I don't think that's a disqualification. I hope it's not a disqualification for writing the book. I have a jug of water here. Um, (laughs) Are you qualified? Yeah,
0: of course. Did you talk to cardinals and members of the
1: church? I talked to one cardinal. I mean, I I wrote to the Vatican and said what I wanted to do. And to my surprise, I had a letter from a Monsignor who was the Master of seminaries for the Pope. And I went to, to the Casa Santa Marta and I went to the Pauline Chapel and the the robing room, the Room of Tears... So you had cope. access that nobody yeah. else has. Yes, I really... They were very, very kind to me. So I got to see all the physical locations in the book, of which there were very few, incidentally, but I walked from... I did the journey from the Casa Santa Marta where the cardinals go and are essentially imprisoned, really. they Their phones and laptops are taken off them, they're not allowed to, the bedroom windows are welded shut, and they're escorted either driven in minibuses or escorted through the Vatican Gardens to the Sistine Chapel, where they uh, do the voting. Uh, and they, I was shown all of this. So I saw, as it were, the physical side of things, and then I did talk to a, co- a cardinal who'd been involved in a conclave, and I spent two or three hours with him, which was very useful. Otherwise, I drew on established records, in particular a secret diary, of the 2005 conclave, which, contrary to all rules, was kept by an anonymous cardinal. And uh, that was the most invaluable resource of them all. And what has their reaction been to the finished novel? Well, the novel's only just been finished. It's only just been sent out, and um, I await the reaction. So they didn't
0: didn't require a proof copy in advance?
1: No, not at all. It was very generous access I was given without any desire to control uh, the result. And I really felt the freedom of being able to write what I wanted. So I'm grateful for that. I mean, in many ways, there's much about the book that, that they will not like, I'm sure, I do hope, though, that they'll see that it, it's not, as it were, a sneer from the outside, mm-hmm. a, a sort of Richard Dawkins mocking of the whole business, but tries at least to be inside and take faith seriously. Well, moving on
0: to your next object now that you brought along. It's a sketch of T.S. Eliot, very lightweight,
1: and we have a photograph of it here. What is the story behind this? Well, there was a dealer in pictures and manuscripts and memorabilia of writers called Roy David who um, operated out of a country place not far from where we live and uh, first my wife went to get me a birthday present there and then I went to get her one and each of us saw hanging up in Roy's gallery this painting it's quite large actually it's a good sort of four or five feet by three or four feet Brilliant. Picture of T. S. Eliot done from the life in Gloucester Road in 1965. I think Eliot was in his eighties. The artist Gerald Kelly, who was president of the Royal Academy and old man, great friend of Somerset Maugham, was also in his eighties. And it's a it's a beautiful picture of uh, of of an old genius, really. And um, we were c- kind of collecting pictures of writers just to decorate the house and. I just really wanted it. And Roy said, no, that's not for sale. He said the same to my wife. And then a few years later, at an auction house, I saw it was in the catalogue. So I I just knew I had to go and get it. So I went to the auction, bid, found myself bidding, I believe, against the National Portrait Gallery, which is a bad thing to find yourself doing, and got it. I really had auction fever, paid for it. And um, to get it home, I hailed a London taxi (laughs) to drive... 40, 50 miles home. So the cabbie could say, I had that T.S. Eliot in the back of the cab. I thought it was just a beautiful picture of a writer and uh, I, I would see it every day. There's something very moving about it. How much do you think that Eliot has influenced your writing style, if at all? I don't think he has influenced my style. I mean, I studied Eliot, I did English at university, and so I know some of his work and it is... Uh, wonderful, but I don't, I wouldn't claim to be in any sense an heir to Eliot. I just like the picture. I just like the dignity of the picture. It's that that drew me to it rather than any particular uh, worship of Eliot, Mm -hmm. who, of course, you know, in some of his views was, um, to put it mildly, controversial. Very. Going back to your own writing, this next
0: extract of conclave takes us to st peter's as lamelle prepares to deliver his homily to the waiting crowds ahead of the election
2: his eyes travelled along the four widely spaced rows of seats wise faces bored faces faces suffused with religious ecstasy one cardinal asleep they looked as he imagined the togged senate of ancient rome might have looked in the days of the old republic here and there he registered the leading contenders Bellini, Tedesco, Adiemi, Tremblay, sitting far apart from one another, each preoccupied with his own thoughts, and it struck him what an imperfect, arbitrary, man-made instrument the conclave was. It had no basis in Holy Scripture whatsoever. There was nothing in the reading to say that God had created cardinals. Where did they fit into St. Paul's picture of his church as a living body? If we live by the truth and in love— We shall grow in all ways into Christ, who is the head, by whom the whole body is fitted and jointed together, every joint adding its own strength. The reading ended. The gospel was acclaimed. Lomeli sat motionless on his throne. He felt he had just been granted an insight into something, but he was not sure what. The smouldering thurible was produced before him, along with a dish of incense and a tiny silver ladle. Epifano had to prompt him, guiding his hand as he sprinkled the incense onto the coals. After the fuming censer had been taken away, his assistant gestured to him to stand, and as he reached up to remove Lomelli's mitre, he peered anxiously into his face and whispered, "'Are you well, Eminence?' "'Yes, I'm fine. The time has almost come for your homily.' "'I understand.' He made an effort to compose himself during the chanting of the Gospel of St. John. I chose you, and I commissioned you to bear fruit. And then, very quickly, the Evangelium was over. Epifano took away his crozier. He was supposed to sit while his mitre was replaced, but he forgot, which meant that Epifano, who had short arms, had to stretch awkwardly to put it back on his head. An altar boy handed him the pages of his script, threaded together by a red ribbon in the top left-hand corner. The microphone was thrust in front of him. The acolytes withdrew. Suddenly he was facing the dead eyes of the television cameras and the great magnitude of the congregation too huge to take in, roughly arranged in blocks of colour. The black of the nuns and the laity in the distance just inside the bronze doors, the white of the priests halfway up the nave, the purple of the bishops at the top of the aisle, the scarlet of the cardinals at his feet beneath the dome. An anticipatory silence fell over the basilica. He looked down at his text. He had spent hours that morning going over it, yet now it appeared entirely unfamiliar to him. He stared at it until he was conscious of a slight stirring of unease around him and realized he had better make a start.
0: Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, that was an extract from the audiobook of Conclave. Robert, you write about the Vatican and the election process in such detail. How many times did you visit Rome while you were working on Conclave?
1: Oh, Once, and um had a tour lasted an entire morning, saw everything I needed to see. That was it, really. I didn't need any more than that. Were um, you allowed to take photographs? Yes, I did. I took a lot of photographs, and... Um, some are uh, really wonderful. I, in fact, I took a video. I was led from the door of the Sistine Chapel across uh, the Sala Regia, as it's called, up the steps along a long gallery, and the, the little video I've made ends with me stepping down onto the balcony from which the uh, the Pope addresses uh, the faithful in St. Peter's. It was absolutely a, a magical kind of experience. I really was shown everything I needed from the sublime to your next object, <laughs> which is a Starbucks mug. Well, yes. Now, this is significant. We were talking earlier about my speeding up in output, and I think yeah. possibly this mug had a lot to do with it because I was on tour for publicity for a Pompeii mm-hmm. 2003, and I can't remember whether it was Manchester or Birmingham, one or the other. I noticed that they were selling in Starbucks, where we went before I did my reading, this sort of mug, which holds... About a cup and a half, probably, of coffee or tea. And uh, it really does keep it warm for two hours. And it meant that I no longer kept getting up every 45 minutes and making a cup of tea or coffee. And so I stayed at my desk and my concentration was uninterrupted. So for 13 years I've been using this mug and I don't know what I'm going to do when it falls apart because I don't think they make them anymore. I'll probably just have to stop writing, I think. But it really uh, has been my faithful companion since 2003. It just enabled me to uh, work better. Now, the conclave is
0: shrouded in secrecy. How difficult was it to discover the details of the election process?
1: Well, it wasn't too hard, actually. The Pope himself issued a, um, a set the rules of the conclave, are, very, uh, are published as a set of laws, and they give you the, the full detail of the ballots. Um, there are, let's say, there's a maximum of 120 cardinal electors. You have to be under the age of 80, to be able to vote. And uh, you have to have a majority of two-thirds. So let's say you have to get 80 votes. And th- it's a series of exhaustive ballots. The f- and um, what happens is the cardinals sit in the Sistine Chapel. They have a, a piece of paper which says in Latin, uh, I I want as Pope, and then underneath you write the name. Then you stand up, you recite your oath that to God, you are voting for the person you think should be the Pope. You place it on a silver salver. you go up to the altar, and you tip your vote into a silver chalice, and then you um, return to your, into an urn, I should say, and then you return to your seat. And this happens, everybody does the same, and then the votes are counted by scrutineers, and then the result is read out. And all the ballot papers are threaded through on a needle and thread, and tied off, and then they are burnt in the stove. And if it's uh, black smoke, of course, it means there's no Pope, and if there's white smoke, it means there is. And all the detail, all the ritual and so on, is laid down in the pa- in the rules. So that's where all that comes from. And then the behind-the-scenes stuff, which happens when you get back to the Casa Santa Marta after a ballot. Everybody talks about what just happened, Um, that's when the shifts start to occur. That's when, you know, the liberals decide to abandon one candidate and get behind another instead. That's when a third world candidate may have started to make a showing that no one was expecting and they'll, what do we know about him? And so it's what the uh, secular would call momentum in an election and what, of course... The cardinals call the exercise of the Holy Spirit. Someone begins to emerge, and uh, that's that's the story of the conclave. And those details, there are enough bits of gossip and rumour, and there was in particular the this secret diary kept of 2005 that, that really gave me the confidence then to go ahead and invent the election.
0: The rave review that you got in the Sunday Times described something about what you've just talked about as the haberdashery of hierarchy, which I thought was a very apt way of putting it, as you were talking about things being sewn together in this all-male conclave. Let's turn back to the fruits of your labour with a final extract from Conclave. We're in the Sistine Chapel and the election is about to begin.
2: As he scrutinised a parade of cardinals, he tried to imagine every individual clothed in pontifical white. Saar Contrera, Sierra, Fitzgerald, Santos, De Luca, Löwenstein, Yandaček, Brodzkus, Villanueva, Nakitanda, Sabadin, Santini, it could be any of these men. It didn't have to be one of the front-runners. There was an old saying, He who enters the conclave a pope leaves it a cardinal. Nobody had tipped the late Holy Father before the last election, and yet he had achieved a two-thirds majority on the fourth ballot. Oh, Lord! Let our choice fall on a worthy candidate, and may you so guide us in our deliberations that our conclave is neither long nor divisive, but an emblem of the unity of your Church. Amen. It took more than half an hour for the entire college to swear their oaths. Then Archbishop Mandorf, as master of papal liturgical celebrations, stepped up to the microphone erected on its stand beneath the Last Judgment. In his quiet, precise voice, stressing all four syllables distinctly, he intoned the official formula extra omnes. The television lights were switched off, and the four masters of ceremonies, the priests and officials, the choristers, the security men, the television cameramen, the official photographer, one solitary nun, and the commandant of the Swiss guard in his white-plumed helmet, all left their positions and made their way out of the chapel. Mandorf waited until the last of them had gone, then he walked down the carpeted aisle to the big double doors. It was 4.46 p.m. precisely. The outside world's last view of the conclave was of his solemn, bald head. And then the doors were closed from the inside, and the television transmission
0: ended. Conclave describes a fractured church, partly wanting to hold on to old traditions, but also wanting to stay relevant. And the cardinals have the eyes of the world's media upon them. Now, there are a number of controversial issues surrounding the Catholic Church today. Did that make Conclave an important book for
1: you to write? I, I do think that um, the Catholic Church is highly important and i think that the i think it's going to be more so in the years to come one of the things in my lifetime that's completely unexpected is the power and influence of organized religion which in the 60s and 70s one thought was dwindling and dying away but now it's come back with a vengeance and there's no doubt that in the in africa and in the middle east militant islamic groups are targeting christians there's been a a terrible slaughter, in fact, of Christians, which received surprisingly little coverage in the Western media. And as the book was finished, there was the terrible murder of a priest in France. in France. I cannot help but fear that there will be more of a sense of religious clash than we've probably seen for centuries. And at the same time, the Western world is changing so fast in its attitude to homosexuality, divorce, all manner of things, that the, the Catholic Church is sort of, it's sort of got one foot on the boat departing and the other foot on the, on the quayside. Mm. And it's, it's, the present pope is a genius at, at reconciling the two, the two kind of sides, but I'm not sure it'll be easier for his successor. So there are, you know, huge issues, and there's no way that you, one could write a novel about a papal election that didn't reflect those those issues and so uh, that is the serious aspect of the book you know that uh, it is a clash of ideas uh, of of what the church is for and whether the c- church can change or does it by changing destroy itself which is the which is an argument that's been going on certainly all my life your final object is you haven't
0: brought it in because it is enormous <laughs> could you please describe
1: well, it's, what I'm looking at. It's a, it's a stone pedestal with a metal a globe on top of it and it is a sundial and it was given to me by my wife, Jill, on my 50th birthday. And it's very interesting because it's, it's sort of... Around the rim of it is a compass. So it's aligned in with the compass north and so on. And there are... Uh, sections of it, arrows leading off from it to particularly important places in my life. That they are truly aligned with the distance. And so to the village where I grew up in Leicestershire and the distance to that. Another arrow points to Rome, where I've set so many of my books, including the latest one. An arrow to Hambledon, the village in the Chiltons where we were married. And another arrow to a place we have in the south of France, which is where we all go all the family all goes on holiday and it's really just a lovely object and um, you know it's it's a I feel very lucky when I look at it because to have a wife and four children and to have had a a life as a writer, which has meant that i've been at home and i've seen them grow up and barely missed a birth time, the writing life has been a real pleasure for me, I must say, and uh, in some way that this this object encapsulates the life it gave me. Is there another location that you'd like to be on it? Well, that's a very good question. I suppose it doesn't point to the place where I was born, Nottingham, for which I feel attraction and, and, and sympathy. It doesn't point to Cambridge, where I went to university, which is also very important to me. There are, and who knows what location may lie ahead <laughs> that it will have to point to. Let us hope it's up rather than down. I know that as an actor, you're constantly... You
0: know—you can just say, well, you've just done four Spielberg films and then somebody say, yes, but what are you doing next? Is there
1: another book in the pipeline and are you headed back to Rome? I do have another idea, and if I can, I would like to try and write it next year. It's set in the 1930s uh, in Britain and in Germany, And uh, I'd like to do that. Uh, As to Rome, I think probably not. I mean, I think I've... I feel that I've got Rome, both ancient and modern, out of my system. But, you know, who knows? You know, one of the great pleasures of of writing is you never know what's going to come along and what will strike you. If you'd told me I was going to write a novel about a papal election, (laughs) I'd have looked at you as if you were crazy. But here it is. So will you turn Cicero to face away from your desk if you're moving to Germany? in your next book? No, I think I'll need all the strength and wisdom <laughs> that his countenance he impart. imparts, yes, to get me through it. Thank you very, very much,
0: Robert. It's been a pleasure, Richard, thank you. Follow us on Twitter at Penguin UK Books and join us on Facebook to see pictures of all the objects we've chatted about today and to see who else will be joining me in the Penguin studio soon.
2: The Pigeon Tunnel, John le Carré's memoir and his first work of non-fiction, is a thrilling journey into the worlds of his secret sharers, the men and women who inspired some of his most enthralling novels. Narrated by the author himself, we see the last half-century, both public and private, through the eyes of one of this country's greatest writers.
0: Spying and novel writing are made for each other. Both call for a ready eye for human transgression and the many routes to betrayal. Those of us who have been inside the secret tent never really leave it. If we didn't share its habits before we entered it, we will share them ever after.
2: The Pigeon Tunnel by John Le Carre is available now on iTunes and Audible.